Turn to Romans chapter 11. Your copy of God's Word, and open it to Romans, the 11th chapter. This is a part two of something we began last week. As you know, I got uh, about two-thirds of the way through last week and just said we need to park the car and come back. And so we're going to be coming back and finishing up a text that's right in the middle of an argument. So this is part two of a text that's in the middle of a bigger argument. But I think that you'll find, as I have, that there are just gloriously amazing truths in this passage that can feed our souls. Romans 11, let me pick it up uh, in verse 23 and read down through verse 27. Romans eleven twenty-three, And they also, that they are Jews, and they... If they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off, that's you being Gentiles, if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, unproductive, not fruitful, and you're grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, How much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so, all Israel will be Saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. When you read the New Testament, you're faced with a problem if you're thinking carefully and clearly. It's the same problem that the first generation of Christians faced when they'd given their faith to Christ and were starting to understand what new covenant theology and new covenant ministry. Jesus said, this new covenant is in my blood, this gospel work, what that meant and what it implied. The first great problem or the first great challenge of the early church then was how do we harmonize This Old Testament, this first 39 books we call the Old Testament, they just called the the Scripture. How do we organize and harmonize the Old Testament with the Gospel? Especially since if Jesus was the promised Old Testament Messiah and the Jews rejected their Messiah, what do we do with this? And if there are Gentiles who keep believing in the Jewish Messiah, what is this going to be? They had always envisioned in their mind, the Jews had, of the Messiah coming and ruling the earth through the Jews. And that will happen one day. So you might understand their confusion. Well, the believers, here here comes Jesus, and we believe that he's the Messiah, and yet more Gentiles are believing in the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, than Jews. How do we make sense of this? Not only that, if Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, shouldn't new Christians who are Gentiles somehow become more Jewish? That would be a logical conclusion that they would make. 
Turn over to Acts chapter 15. Because this is exactly what happened in the first council at Jerusalem. Acts chapter 15, a very important real estate in your Bible. Acts 15 verse 1, some men came down from Judea, from up north, teaching the brethren, this was what they were teaching, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. There it is in bold language. Unless you who believed in Christ as a Gentile become Jewish, then you cannot have the Jewish Messiah. It kind of makes sense, doesn't it? When Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, these guys who came out of the north, brethren, uh, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others of them should go up to Jerusalem and to the apostles and the elders concerning this issue. They, you guys got to sort this out. What are we doing? Are we asking people to believe in Christ and then be circumcised? Is that, is that, the, is that the gospel? Therefore, being sent on their way, verse 3, by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And were bringing great joy to all the brethren. Well, when they arrived in Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. They keep telling people the gospel, and the Gentiles keep believing. But some of them, of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed, some of those rascal Pharisees that we always uh, kind of look down on, some of them were converted. Some of them are saved, and they're here in this meeting. Some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them, to make them Jewish, and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Well, the apostles and the elders came together to look at this matter. Verse 7, and after... There had been much debate. Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. That happened back in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius. Remember when he saw the vision and the sheet and unclean animals are now edible? And God who knows the heart testified to them, giving them, the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. That's the message of the book of Romans. So that sheet with all those unclean animals that Peter was to rise, kill, and eat was a symbol. Certainly it took the dietary laws off of the New Testament believer, but it was also a symbol that what was unclean, the Gentiles now have become clean because of the faith that they had in the Messiah. Verse 10, now there were, now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the necks of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? There is such an insight into the theology and application of the law in the Old Testament. Why are you trying to say they need to believe, believe and obey in the law, obey the law, when, you know what, we didn't which is the first four chapters of the book of Romans. Now, I want to tell you before we read verse 11, one of the most exciting things that I remember at, uh, at Mission Road is my friend Bill Milam coming to me and saying what an impact this verse had on him to understand what a privilege it is for Gentiles to have the gospel, even to take back the Jews. Because look at this. Peter says this. We believe, verse 11... 
that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way also as they are. They're the pattern of salvation, not, not us as Jews. It's a remarkable understanding. Significant statement by Peter. He's saying that the Jews are saved the same way the Gentiles are, through faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, think about it. Peter, a devout Jew, understood that the determining factor of eternity is Jesus of Nazareth, not Old Testament law observance. That's significant. You say, okay, but what then of the Old Testament promises to Israel? Did God just kind of hit a mulligan with Israel? If, if you play golf or you know anything about golf, a mulligan is, is a shot that you take. But because it's a bad shot, you feel like, well, I can take another Kind of ignore that first shot. I had a man tell me one time, Israel was God's mulligan. He tried it with them and it didn't work, so he turned to the Gentiles. Is that what's going on here? Is that really, really how God is treating, has treated, will treat Israel? So, here's the question. What about the promises to Israel when they, most of them, disbelieve, they're trapped in unbelief, as the verse tells us, or, and most of the believers are actually Gentiles. Remember Jeremiah's prophecy? Behold, Jeremiah 32, verse 37. Behold, I will gather them out of all of the lands to which I have driven them in my anger, in my wrath, in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safely, safety. Or Ezekiel's prophecy, Ezekiel 36, 24, for I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Did that happen in 1948? We posed last week. I don't think so. I did some research this week. There are 16 million Jews in the world today. Only 6.1 of them live in Israel. So if 1948 was this, God missed it by two-thirds. And God doesn't miss anything. Since Romans 2, back to Romans 11, we've been hearing that Israel had a significant problem. And this is all review, running up to our last point that we stopped off with last week. Romans 2, we've been hearing that of, um, of Paul's letter to these Italians, that the Jews in particular have demonstrated a significant problem in relation to God. They were hearers but not doers of the law, Romans 2.13 says. And then it's, it's actually crystallized and articulated in Romans 10, verses 1 to 4. I want them to be saved. I testify that they have a zeal for God but not in accordance with knowledge. They're passionate about God but they don't know what they're passionate about. It's, it's, it's aimless. You say knowledge about what? For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. There it is. You say, well, how do they get to God's righteousness? Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. There's the whole problem with the Jewish mindset from the days of Christ to today. They think that they can add their own works, their own self-effort and righteousness to their spiritual resume and God will be impressed rather than seeing that he's not impressed with anyone's resume except Jesus's and only those whose faith is in him and his covering and his imputed righteousness 
brings us to God. Rome, excuse me, John 1.11, he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. So what do we do with Israel? What does a Christian do with the nation of Israel? We began looking at this last week. Here's the bottom line. Israel will be saved. One day Israel will be saved. And that's what this passage addresses. So we broke it down by showing three insights into the mystery of Israel's salvation. Three insights into the mystery of Israel's salvation. Now we get that from verse 25. I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. Paul is saying, I want you to understand what the issue is between Israel and God and God and Israel and how the future of that's going to work out. Don't be uninformed. Said positively, be informed. Know this. This matters. This is significant, not only to your theology, but it's it's significant to your own understanding of what God's like. Why? Because if God made promises to them, he didn't keep to them, and he's made promises to you, what makes you think he might keep them to you? Three insights into the mystery of Israel's salvation. Number one, and again, this is just review, the means of Israel's salvation, the way, the means of Israel's salvation, namely faith in the gospel. Verse 23, and they also, that's the Jews, they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, there's the great qualifier, if they don't continue in their unbelief, there's a big play in these two verses between faith and unbelief, disbelief, not believing, unbelieving, and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They also, if they don't continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in. Stop right there. We made an illustration in the previous passage of this this olive root or this olive trunk, this tree. This tree is a really interesting illustration. This tree was a very healthy trunk, and um, the, the, the natural branches were lopped off because they didn't hold to the nature of the trunk. This was... An illustration, Paul says, of the Jews who were cut off because of their disbelief. They've been cut off. But then he gives this illustration. You've got these wild olive, and the, 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 the trunk, though, is still good, solid, healthy. But out in the wilderness, you have trees that are alive, but they're not bearing fruit. And the branches are dead. They don't have any fruit on them. And God cuts branches off of the dead fruit-bearing tree. It has, it's feeding the tree, but it's not bearing fruit in life that way. He cuts those fruitless branches off and brings and grafts them into the good trunk, and they bear fruit. But God said in this verse that the original, those are Gentiles, that the original Jews who were cut off could be grafted in If they believe, verse 24, for if you, that's the Gentiles, were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive, a fruitless olive tree, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated tree. He's saying, this doesn't make sense. No one who has a healthy olive tree goes out and finds branches not bearing fruit from an unhealthy olive tree, cuts them off, and grafts them into that tree. No one does that. It's contrary to nature, except that God does things contrary to nature. But the point is not about the Gentiles. He just dealt with that in the previous passages. The point is about the Jews. If they were grafted in contrary to nature into a cultivated, a healthy tree, how much more will these who are natural branches, Jews, be grafted into their own? I love that. Their own tree. Now we know about this branch, this this, uh, trunk rather. 
It is originally God's design for those Jews to understand the gospel. They're grafted back into the whole purpose and plan of God from the Older Testament. At issue here is faith versus unbelief. Faith, unbelief. If they continue in their unbelief, no grafting in. Because we have faith, we're grafted in. It's all faith in Jesus. And that's all review. Number two, reviewing again, the extent of Israel's salvation. The extent of Israel's salvation. And that is this, the entirety of the nation. The entirety of the nation. Now he gives us this mystery language, for I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. A mystery is something that was not revealed beforehand, but takes uh, on full dimensional explanation in the New Testament. It was hinted at, but not fully developed until now, until the gospel, until the New Testament. I don't want you to be uninformed. You got to know this, he says. And he's speaking predominantly to Italians who were not Jewish, who had believed the gospel in Rome. Don't be uninformed. Because you know what? If you're uninformed, look at the next phrase. So that you will not be wise in your own estimation. You won't think this. Your arrogance, our arrogance, most of us are, are saved Gentiles. He's saying we have the possibility of being arrogant in, 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 a, in a couple of uh, expressions. First of all, we just look down on Jews. No blood-bought Christian by the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, ought to ever entertain a put-down or a joke or a derisive comment about any Jew ever, ever, ever. He says you could be arrogant by looking down on them that way. You could also be arrogant by just ignoring them. Just not even thinking that Jewish evangelism is, a, is in play. And yet Paul began the book of Romans, the gospel is to the Jew, what? First, and then to us. So we can be arrogant by ignoring them. We could also be arrogant by saying, well, God is done with them. That's amillennialism. He's finished with Israel. That's arrogance. Or in our camp who believe in a future for Israel, we could be arrogant by saying, well, God dealt with Israel. He's going to deal with Israel. Right now, we're just a church. We're going to worry about that and just ignoring them. Wise in your own estimation. And he says about what? That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Not all Jews have believed. Some have. Paul's a testimony of that in the first few verses of, of, verse, of chapter 11. But he says, there's a partial hardening. God has hardened the hearts of, of the Jews because they turned their back on the Messiah. Acts chapter 2 explains that. But it's not going to stay forever until the fullness of the Gentiles is coming in. Romans 8 talks about the elected Gentiles Basically, when the last elect Gentile believes the gospel, God turns a page on, prophetic, on his prophetic calendar. Tribulation begins. Rapture of the church happens. And he begins looking toward saving Jews in mass. How do we know that? Because verse 20 tells us, 26 tells us. And so, after this partial hardening, Someday, all Israel will be saved. You've got to be careful with that. Does all Israel mean everybody who's ever been a Jew is going to be resurrected and given life and they're going to be saved? That's not what it means. Does it mean that every Jew on the planet at that time will be saved? No. What it means is all who constitute the people called Israel, they will be converted Christians. That's what it means. All who are Israel at that time will be believers in their Messiah. 
spiritual Jews, spiritual Israel, they'll all become Christians. Let me say it this way. The Christians who are Jews will constitute all Israel. There will likely be unbelieving Jews during the tribulation as well. But all of the, the believing Jews, they will constitute this new body of Jews and all Israel, that group, the remnant. Remember the remnant theology we studied? The remnant will be saved. We looked at this in, in particular last week. I won't take the time now. We, we read all the way through Ezekiel 37, the dry bones, where Ezekiel, he's not talking about individuals. He's talking about the nation. There's all these, these bones that came back together. And, and, and the point of that is he says, the whole of Israel will dwell in the land. One of the reasons that I, I'm suspicious of 1948 being in biblical prophecy is that there are two to one the number of Israels living outside the land as inside the land now. But predominantly, at that time when God gathers the people back to the land, he says, you will all be my people and I will be your God. Is that possible without Jesus Christ? It's impossible. So could God be gathering a group of people and... Israel, a group of Jews, 6 million out of 16 million in, in, in Israel to, to get a head start. I guess he could, but listen, Jews being scattered all over the world is no inconvenience to the mighty works of God, is it? He's still got to bring 10 million of them to the land and convert them. So don't put your hope in 1948. Put your hope in the great deliverer. All Israel will be saved doesn't mean every Jew who's ever lived will be converted. He's speaking of Jews living at the time of the great deliverer, I believe, in the tribulation. By the way, Zechariah chapter 12 and 13 gives specific details of that redemption. That's for another study. The entirety of the nation will be saved. In other words, all who call themselves Israel at that point will be believers in the Messiah. How do we know that? Number three, the nature of Israel's salvation the nature of Israel's salvation. This is where it comes into focus. Reception of Jesus as the Messiah. You could even say their Messiah. The reception of Jesus as their Messiah. Just, verse 26, right in the middle, just as it is written. I love that Paul always leans on his, his Bible. The Deliverer, you'll notice in most of your translation, that's with a capital D, that's God himself, will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. What did Jacob have his name changed to? Israel. It's just another name for Israel. He will remove ungodliness from Israel, from Jacob. So the issue here is not just nationally being set aside as a nation recognized by the United Nations. The Israel here is being saved from their sins according to the deliverer who is Jesus Christ. That's what's going on here. Isaiah 59 is what's quoted. Uh, let me read you the, um, the full text. Isaiah 59, verses 20 and 21. A redeemer will come to Zion. And to those who turn from transgression in Israel, in Jacob, declares the Lord. A redeemer is going to come, and they will turn from their sins in Israel and receive the Messiah. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord which is going to be quoted here in verse 27. As for me, this is my covenant with them. My spirit is upon you. My words which I have put in your mouth, you shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring. 
nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. Whenever that happens, it doesn't end. The partial hardening is over. When Israel comes to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, something changes. Now, what's remarkable to me is the next promise. Verse 27. This is my promise. This is my covenant with them. When I take away their sins. This is the most important detail of this future salvation. It will be a salvation from sin, not all the enemies in the Middle East. Huge difference. Last week I pointed you to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. It's just incredible. This, this one will give you chills when you really absorb what's going on. This is pre-Christ, Old Testament. Zechariah 12.10, listen. And listen to the Trinity here. This is so remarkable to me. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they, listen to the pronouns, so they will look on me whom they have pierced. Who was pierced? Jesus. They will look on me. This is Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. They will look on me whom they have pierced. Jesus wasn't just sent from God. Jesus was God. Jesus is God. All you're reading in the Old Testament is Jesus. That's God. They will look on me whom they have pierced. And then it says, and they will mourn for him. Now, if you're smart, and I know you are, you'll notice that the pronouns don't match up. They will look on me whom they've pierced and will mourn for him. And here's what I will tell you. If you're not wonderfully confused when you come to Trinitarian language, you probably don't understand the Bible. <laughs> it's both. Yes, it's all the above. They will weep and mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. When did that happen? John chapter 19 after they pierced Jesus, after he had dead, they broke the bones of the other two criminals, uh, the criminals who were cru uh, crucified on his right and left. They broke their bones to the, in the legs so that they could stop pushing up to breathe. Expired very quickly. They came to Jesus. He was already dead, so they thrust a spear into his side. And in John 19, 37, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they pierced, quoting Zechariah 12. Now journey with me over to Revelation chapter 1. Verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. The Jews are the ones who talked the Romans into breaking legs or piercing him. They will see the one who's been pierced. And they will rejoice one day, says Zechariah. When will that happen? Revelation chapter 7. Revelation 6, the tribulation period begins. Seven years of, of um, the wrath of God being poured out. The judgment of God, the day of the Lord, begins three and a half years in when the Antichrist commits the abomination of desolation, claiming to be God, very God, 
in the temple. That's for another series and another sermon. Then there's these seals, and what you have to understand is this scroll bound up, and as they would wind the scroll up to make sure it was sealed, every few rolls they would drop some wax and roll it up, and it would, it would stick. They would roll it up some more, drop some wax, and it would stick. And, every, and so to open that seal as you're unrolling it, the seals would pop. That's what's going on here. He's unrolling the seal, the judgment of God on the earth. As this is unrolled, the judgment of God is dispensed on the earth. But there's a deep breath and there's an interlude in chapter 7. And we find out something interesting going on during the tribulation. Chapter 7, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Why is that important? Verse 2, I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. So these four angels stopped. You see there's a respite. There's, a, there, there's an interlude here. Saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until, until we have sealed the slaves, the bond servants of our God on their foreheads. Who is he talking about? Who will be saved? Who does he want preserved in this tribulational period? And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 sealed or saved from every tribe of the sons of Israel. You could easily skip from the end of verse 4 to, to verse 9 and feel like you didn't miss much. Except God didn't do that. He went tribe by tribe. Listen. From this tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed, were saved. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Why such detail? Why such detail? All Israel will be saved. What does he mean by that? Representative of the whole of Israel, these 12,000 from each tribe would not only be sealed, they would be evangelists. Look at the context, because look at what happens next. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And then the rest of the chapter is just worship. 
God said in painstaking detail that members of every tribe of Israel would be saved and they actually would become evangelists and witness to the whole of the earth, all nations bringing them to faith in Christ. When will this great ingathering take place? I don't think it takes place so that God can call Israel to himself. It takes place because God has taken Israel and called her to himself. The point of that is this will happen. It won't happen until the fullness of the Gentiles, the elect Gentiles, have been converted. And after that comes the rapture of the church, seven years of tribulation, followed by 1,000 years of a literal reign of Christ from Jerusalem, sitting on a throne with a temple rebuilt, and we are able to get there and go from there and live on the earth with him as our king at the capital of Jerusalem on the planet. And then at the end of that thousand years, there's a very new situation in which we have not just Jerusalem from which he reigns, but we have a new, what is it? A new Jerusalem. God's eye is ever on the Jews, but not just because they have genetic connection to Abraham. He made a promise to them that he's going to fulfill in bringing some, many of them, to faith in his son. When in the Bible, we'll say it this way, in modern Israel you can become a citizen by being Jewish or a proselytized Jew. But in the Bible, the Israel of God are only those who receive Jesus by faith as their Lord and Savior. Paul already said this, Romans 2, verse 28. He's not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is the circumcision with that which is toward the flesh. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. Remember what Romans 10 said? They try to earn God's favor. Praise comes from God because of his Son and our faith in him, not our effort and our works, which would only bring praise to us. Our salvation is not a matter of works that no man might, what? Boast. So what's the takeaway? If God made promises, he keeps them, even if we don't see the fulfillment. You know what that tells us? God has made promises to you in so many different ways. And just because you don't see or sense or feel the, the fulfillment of those promises now doesn't mean they're not true. God is credible, believable, and he will act on his timetable, which is, which is rarely ours. We have a believable, credible, loving, trustworthy God. He keeps his promises, and he's made a lot to you.